handle most of the teaching. If you're new with us, we're so glad you're here. Hopefully everybody just got up and made you feel uncomfortable by shaking your hand and welcoming you. All right. Um, before we jump in, uh, I watched something online uh, this week that I thought was uh, interesting. It was a guy talking about how to take an interview. Like if you're being interviewed for a job, there's questions that they ask and um, he was kind of helping people and coaching people to how to navigate um, the interrogation process when you're being interviewed for a new job. And one thing that he said in there is, think about the questions that you get asked and it kind of falls into some different patterns. Like one of the questions uh, you might get asked is, how much money do you think you should make for this job? Right? And people oftentimes will answer that question in such a way that they'd be like, well, I think, you know, $200,000 ain't too much, right? I mean, if you got it lying around. Um, and what employers will do is, if they have 20 applicants, they will use questions like that not to accept you, but to thin out the crowd. Because they can't make a difference between 20 different people they will ask questions like this in order to reject you, not accept you, right? And now think about the last interview that you did or application that you did. Some of the questions that are on there talk about your qualifications and these sort of things. Some of the questions are almost like trick questions trying to make you slip up and to give them a reason not to accept you. And I, I find that fascinating because when we get into the text today, we're going to have people approaching Jesus with questions that aren't necessarily honest. They're not, they're, they're not even really good questions. And, and some of it has more to do with them finding an excuse to reject him rather than finding an excuse to accept him. You tracking with what I'm saying? So, uh... Maybe put that in the back of your mind. Let's go through the text and see if the Lord won't uh, make it clear to us. Would you, let's pray and ask God to help us, uh, both in the preaching of the word and its delivery and its reception. Bow your hearts and minds if you would. Dear Heavenly Father, we enter your courts with thanksgiving and your presence with praise. Praise is befitting of you because you are the author of this scripture and the one who aims to sanctify your people through it. God, as we see Jesus probed and questioned, and God, as truth comes revealed in that process, God, would you um, preach this text to us all over again and make it fresh to us? God, would you help my brothers and sisters out there to understand it? God, even beyond that, would you Convict us of our own sin when we're just like them. God, would you make even a few of us bold enough to repent and to believe the gospel? Help us, Lord, to find every excuse that you've given to us in your word to believe and to accept you and not to reject you. So come, Holy Spirit, be the teacher, the pastor. And shepherd your people for your will and for your glory. We pray that in Jesus' name. Everyone said, Amen. Amen. If you've got a Bible, hope you do. Uh, Mark chapter 7. Um, 
It's traditional Sunday. That's why I wore my bow tie. All right. Uh, we're going to get into the traditions of men. I also heard one time, if you can't preach, you might as well look like you can, right? And so I'm halfway there. Um, Mark chapter 7 starts out um, with really we've left in the previous chapters some of the marvelous, and we're going to transition into the mundane. Here's what I mean. We have went from God doing miracles and miraculous things that any one of us would love to see in our lifetime that may not happen for hundreds of years. I mean, the feeding of thousands of people, the walking on water, we leave the miraculous, and now we go into church problems, <laughs> right? Church folk and church problems. It's kind of mundane, right? Uh, we are having a family meeting after, so that, that's the Holy Spirit arrangement, all right? <clears throat> now, when the Pharisees gathered to him, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem. Now, I want to I pause here for just a second, and we've already talked about what both of these uh, groups, who they were, but I want to kind of jog your memory a little bit. The Pharisees were a sect of Judaism that were incredibly zealous in some ways with honoring God and serving God and the keeping of the law. So you think of them as a sect, um, sort of like in Islam, you could say that the Taliban and Shiite and Sunni are sects within of Islam. Islam, okay? The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Zealots, these are different sects that existed in the first century. They're there. The scribes, which it just said the scribes, are a profession or a subgroup of particular individuals within the Pharisees. I've taught you previously in our, um, our navigation through Mark that the scribes developed after the time of Ezra. During the time of Ezra and the prophets, they rediscovered the word of God and as it goes, revival breaks out. Because if we really get the word of God, revival breaks out. That's, that's the pattern in scripture. And so at the time of Ezra, they have a rediscovering of the scriptures such that people go through a massive, uh, we might use this language, a reformation. Okay, but you give enough time between the time of Ezra and the time here of Jesus and the scribes started out as a group that just copied the scripture. So think of them as the office depot of their day. All right. Xerox. And, and that's a good thing. Like I'm, I'm thankful for the scribes who copied the scripture so that people would have access to the word of God. And it would be preserved even until our day. Amen. Thank God for the scribes. But they developed into this. Not, not, not a good thing of just copying the scriptures, but they developed into something more that was incredibly unhealthy. They became lawyers. They didn't just copy it, they began to teach it. They became the experts on it. This is uh, equivalent, as I've said, of the intelligista. This is the ivory tower. They are university professors. This is equivalent of someone coming with authority saying, experts say, or in our time, hashtag science says, as though science has a voice. It doesn't. Right? But you use that as an, they became the authority that you would quote when it came to scripture. And these people come from Jerusalem. That's the big city. Right? And so they're from the hub. They're from the headquarters. These are people, these are the elite of the elite when it comes to Judaistic morality. And it says that they gathered to him. They gathered to him. And I, I would just say this right now. That, like if this is me in this text... The, the first thing that came to my mind is there's some people you don't want to be close in your life. Right? There are pharisaical people 
that you do not want in your life. They are not out for your good. And if you allow them the deepest possible access into your heart, they will nitpick you to death. And so that, that, that's, that's how that hits me. All right, But Jesus, he takes them in and he's going to have this interaction with them. Verse 2, and they saw, this is important, that some of his disciples, so this is not a, an accusation levied against Jesus, but Jesus via, vicariously through the disciples, they ate with hands that were defiled. Now this is a word that's going to be important for the rest of this chapter and the following um, two sermons we're going to do. That is that they were unwashed. Now, this was not actually uh, them washing their hands. I need to say that right out the gate. Um, and this had to do with a, and even some of your translations will get at this when they'll say, talk about a fist. In the Greek, it talks about a fist. There was a particular way in which they washed their hands. It has to do with a ritual ceremony and not necessarily hygiene. Are you tracking with me so far? This has to do with a ritual of how they washed. This uh, so I'm going to apologize in advance for this example. I always think about this because if you use the bathroom at church and then you come out, everybody wants to shake your hands and it's dripping wet, right? I'm looking around, I'm like, I've shaked some of your hands and then you feel judged because it's like either this guy washed his hands or he needs to, right? And you walk out and you're just trying to dry your hands real quick. Even worse, it would be like the Pharisees coming being like, hey, everybody, this guy went to the bathroom and didn't wash his hands, right? That's gross, but they became, uh, I don't know, is it too soon to compare them to the health department in 2020? <clears throat> right? It's that too soon? I did. All right. I'm looking for the other elders here. Okay, so just imagine somebody with unlimited power to make hand washing a really big thing. All right? These guys didn't even say their ABCs when they washed their hands. Where did they go to kindergarten at? Right? This has nothing to do with hygiene. This has to do... If you, if you look in the Old Testament, there's no command that the common person, the bar aretz, would have to wash their hands coming from the marketplace. This has to do with something else. Now look what Mark does. I think this is brilliant because we've talked about that Mark went from a bigoted Jewish person that did not like unclean, defiled Gentiles to being someone the Holy Spirit used to author this gospel so that Roman Gentiles would know who Jesus is. Y'all remember that sermon, right? Like, what was it, 17 months ago when we started this series about who John Mark is and how God chose the most unlikely person to write a gospel to a bunch of Gentile pagans as John Mark? The next couple of verses are explaining to Gentiles who wouldn't know about this cleansing. L look at what it says. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly. There, there again, your fist illustration. Holding the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and the pots and the copper vessels and the dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. Now, let me just pause right there about that little phrase just, just spilled out of Jesus' mouth. How many people grew up in church never hearing Jesus say anything that hard? Right? 
He's just blonde hair, blue-eyed, walking by the beach, right? Blessing people, right? Jesus never offended anybody, never got into any kind of controversy. Well did Isaiah, he's like, Isaiah did a fantastic job as a prophet talking about you. Now, he wasn't aimed at them. He's saying the same Old Testament people that rejected God in the left side of the book is the same thing that you're doing right now. You are history repeating itself in the worst possible way. I mean, that's, that's, that's rough, Jesus. Jesus looked at people in their face and called them hypocrites. I, I just don't know if the pop culture Jesus, that we're so cool with Jesus blessing us, and helping our lives, and the prosperity Jesus, I don't know if that, that Jesus ever says words. I don't think our pop culture version of Jesus is, is allowed to say things like this, but the biblical Jesus who died on the cross for your sins, he is constantly all about truth. It is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain, vain? Do they worship me? Teaching as doctrines the commandments of men? You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men? And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. So here's the danger. The danger is vain worship, church. And I think if we're honest, we've all come to church with vain worship built up in our heart at some time or the other. We might be here today because it's the thing that we do, it's the expectation that we have, and it's not because we love God. I've been in this weird place because I've been reading some of these Puritan thinkers about how they would take the night before, Saturday night, as a family, and begin to prepare their hearts for worship. That when they got up on Sunday morning, they begin to prepare, just to come in the congregation of God and worship, they would take the evening before and the morning of, and they would get their families and their focus and their minds directed towards the things of heaven, and how they entered into worship, and I, and I come so flippantly, Right? That there's a way in which we could just go through the motions. And our hearts really not burn with affection for God. I mean, I'm the only one that's been there, right? He says the danger is vain worship. Empty worship. Pointless, fruitless, lifeless. It's without purpose. Your worship is without effect. It's futile. Let me put it to you this way. Your worship can be wrong. They, and you know what scares me about this passage? Even more than talking about other religions is that they had the right God. They had the right address. They're just mailing the wrong stuff. They're mailing words from lips, 
but not a heart laid on the altar. That should scare us to really look at our lives and our worship. Do you hear what I'm saying here? The danger is vain worship. Now let me make a side note. If you've ever wondered if false religions that use the word God and like, just like we do, if they're accepted before the true and living God, look no further than this thing. Because they had the, wrong, the right address, the right God, but they came to Him by the wrong means, and God says their worship is purposeless. It's nothing. And if that's true, the Scriptures teach that other religions actually have at their head demons, not the true and living God, and that their earnest worship is not offered to God. It's not there's one God and many pathways to him. There is one God and a host of the demonic that hopes to, to take your means of worship. Look at every religion. They, it does not care by which means you get to God as long as it's not Jesus. That's demonic. The demonic in other false ideologies and religions does not, it does not care as long as you go any means except besides Jesus. Why is that? Because means matter. The vehicle by which we go to God matters. We, let me put it to you in, in a hard term, and I hope you can stay with me with this. You do not go to God on your own terms. You do not ascend the throne room of the most holy However you please. Do you realize the Old Testament directions for worship are specific and they are God-given? God says, you come to me through the means by which I provided and no other way. The conflict that God often has with his people is him, them trying to come to him by other ways. Church, I, 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 I want to say this in as much love as I can and I hope you hear it. You are not equal with God. Your word and your will are not equal with God. This is not a negotiation. He has laid out in love means by which you can come to him and know him and worship him. And he does not honor other means. He says... and. It's a serious problem to worship the wrong thing or the wrong God. But it's equally a serious problem to come to the right God by the wrong means. Right? This is why we talk gospel here as often as possible. Amen? The gospel is our access or means by which we come to God. It is the grace of God displayed to us. Alright, now i got to keep going here. He quotes Isaiah... Uh, Isaiah 29, 13, with a bit of a paraphrase in connection to Exodus, which is brilliant. It's a smooth way of Jesus saying, I might be in conflict with your tradition, but you're in conflict with Exodus, which is a part of the law, and Isaiah, which is part of the prophets. The law and the pro prophets got a problem with you. I'm okay if your tradition got a problem with me, but you should not be okay with the law and the prophets having a problem with you. And he lays out this dynamic. You can almost see it spatially. You have a way of leaving 
in order to hold, of rejecting in order to establish. Do you see that in the text? He says you have a way of leaving in order to hold in a way of rejecting in order to establish. Here's where what they're doing is exactly what's in my heart and your heart. Stay with me. We as humans have a sin nature tendency to dethrone God's word so that we can enthrone dang near everything else. We dethrone the word of God that we might enthrone the word of man. The same pretty church tendency that is in them has been in us. So let me get down to the accusation then. Their accusation against Jesus is this. Why do your disciples do blank? Okay, so before I get into the specifics of the washing and the law and the legalism and the elders and all that, look at the base of the accusation and, and let's take it into our day. Why do your disciples do blank? And fill in the blank. Okay? Here's what they're saying. I am going to discredit you, Jesus, by what your church is doing. And anybody heard that one? Right? I might believe in God, but all that organized religion stuff. I'm going to discredit the beauty and glory of Jesus because his people are a bunch of knuckleheads. And, and I, I know some of us are from different generations, but I grew up in a generation of the church that had this, uh, this, this kind of ideology about its mission. It's called seeker-friendly. Anybody heard of seeker-friendly churches? Right? Like, no hands? That's good. Nope. Okay. Four of you just got saved. That's good. Um, seeker-friendly churches. Here's what seeker-friendly is. We want to be so appealing... That's because you're on the like second row. One more row up and you know, you're running this thing. Okay? Um, seeker-friendly churches have this idea that almost like we should like, be cool to the culture. Like we can be cool enough to draw people into the church. And if there's ever kind of a way in which we can, it's almost like a bait and switch. We're going to get them in here. They're going to hear the message. And, and we just need to draw as many people as possible. Now, what happens with that is people become hypersensitive in the church about the reasons why people walk away. And so there's blogs and articles and books written about why people are leaving the church in droves or whatever, which I don't know what kind of sociology you watch, but the church is actually not doing terrible in America. You can look at a lot of high-level sociology. What's leaving is mainline denominations, and it's forming into tons of church plants and not network churches instead of mainline denominations. But I don't have time to do all that. But here's what happens. We look at things that we do inside the church, and we see people leave, and we're like, okay, that's our fault. And so we almost like self-mutilate, where we try to almost conform to the world in order to please the worldly so that they can ch come to church. It's wild. But you get this sense inside of the church. It's like, and let me pause and say, I get it. Like, on one level, I get it. Churches do a lot of stupid stuff sometimes, amen? Listen, I'm talking about us, all right? Or at least me. And I get that. And we should, let's minimize the stupid. Everybody okay with that? Can we vote on that at the meeting? Right? I think sometimes if you came to our elder meeting, you would realize how often we pray, God, just don't let us be foolish. 
Don't let us screw this up, right? Make us wise. Help us, right? Like, I get it. We, don't, we minimize the, the dumb things that we do, and let's minimize sin where we're, we're doing as little sin as possible so that it witnesses best for God. But here's the thing. Nobody's writing the book that the reason why some people leave church is because men love darkness rather than light. That men love darkness rather than light. And so the accusation here is that because the bride of Christ, because the church is not perfect. Listen, I'm not Jesus. You're not Jesus. Jesus is in the midst of us making us holy. But none of us are going to be a part of a perfect church this side of heaven. Amen. But what we can be is faithful. That with as much Jesus as we know, let's preach him. Amen. With as much Jesus as we know, let's live him. And when we screw up, let's own it. And even in where we screw up, the culture can look at us and say, you know, they're not perfect, but at least they repent. Amen? Okay. Now, let's get to this and dive into this tradition versus the Word of God thing. So how do we get to the place where hand-washing and even what he's going to say about Corbin and honoring your father, where do we get to that? Um, uh, let's, let's kind of explain that. Here's what happened. In the culture, they saw the word of God as so perfect that they wanted to build around it, let's call it a buffer zone, of additional rules that if you kept those rules, you would not even come close to offending the law. It's kind of like this. If mama says, I don't want any mud to get tracked in the house, that's, her, that's the law, by the way. Um, the additional rule would be, you're going to take your shoes off before you come in. Are, are you seeing that dynamic? So in order to make sure that one never happens, they made it additional laws, which said if you were keeping those, you wouldn't even be getting close to breaking the law. It was a buffer zone around the law. Um, and so they began to heap up these additional washing rules. Like Mark says in the passage that they do many such things as this. Do you read that in your text? Listen, I'm encouraging you to bring your Bible. Okay, we're, we're doing the Bible thing today. Many such things that they do in that, that text. Try 30 chapters of a book dedicated to washing pots and pans. 30 chapters. Full of laws about how to properly wash pots and pans. And if you've been married for a minute and ever had, we got a marriage class on Wednesday night and this came up, and you've ever had a fight about the proper way to load and unload a dishwasher... You're like, you know what? I've never been so compelled by Judaism in my whole life. My man need to read all 30 chapters of pots and pans for Jesus. Right? They had, you think the Bible is thick. Get, get a hold of 30 chapters. Thank you, Mark, for summarizing many such things they do. 30 chapters deep. Okay, um, and I, I got to make this side note before I jump into this. It's still baffling to me that in 2021, we are no longer the primary Pharisees of culture. Like that there's somebody, like our culture is making up so many man-made rules that are anchored into no truth, right? You can talk, do this, don't do that. Tesla, right? No, nobody know? Okay. Um, say this, you can, you have to repeat this political mantra. You don't say this, you do say this. You need to support this, don't support this. 
It's weird that in our culture, because when I grew up, it was definitely the church was the primary Pharisees making up additional rules. Somehow we've abdicated that role to celebrities. I don't, the fact that we're not, the fact that we're not the leading people making up Pharisee man-made laws is wild to me. Church, you have failed gloriously at doing something that you shouldn't be doing anyways. Well done. Uh, keep going. All right, let them have it. They're like cannibalizing each other over stuff they made up. All right? Okay, so I digress. Um, here's what they begin to do is that they started to take what's called the tradition of the elders. When you read this in the text, this is not... Um, an existing elder body like we have over our church. The tradition of the elders was an oral tradition from basically leaders and rabbis that had come before. The tradition of the elders was a series of additional laws that they had, scribbles, compilations, and different things that they put together. And basically, if you think about this, what have preachers said for the last uh, 2,000 years? They put that together and made it equal to Scripture. That wasn't enough. They call this thing, um, um, I just lost my, the uh, Mishnah, and they compiled that and they put it with a, a compilation of interpretations of that called the Gomorrah. So they needed two additional documents just to say how you're supposed to protect the law and live the law. So they took these rabbi notes, teaching scribbles, and they put it together. The tradition of the elders was not a living group of people that, was, that Jesus was offending, it was basically what the oral way of doing. I know this is going to be hard to relate to. This is how we've always done it. That is what Jesus was coming in conflict with. We don't have this problem anymore. So just use your imagination. This is the way we've always done. I mean, this is exact. This is the way the pastor forty years ago did things. This is the way our church. That's what Jesus is coming. It wasn't the existing elder board or leaders. It was the ones that had come before that had created this oral tradition called uh, the Mishnah and combined that with the Gomorrah. And this was expanded. The rabbinical school at Jerusalem took these two books. They combined them together to something that I've taught you about before called the Talmud. They codified it and it became a couple hundred years after Jesus. And it became authoritative alongside scripture. The rabbis in Babylon refused to be outdone by the rabbis in Jerusalem. So they took these writings in Babylon and made a Talmud that was four times longer than the one from Jerusalem. Right? This goes on, and if you add this to the commentary that they put on the Old Testament called the Midrash, you now had the Midrash the Mishnah, the Gomorrah, the Talmud, you had all of these additional documents. And if you think the Bible's hard to read, 30 chapters, pots and pans, my brothers and sisters. This is the tediousness of making minute decisions for people about how to keep the Word of God. They tried to manage every aspect of, they tried to control every aspect of God's people. Now, the the thing about this is, is that in the Old Testament, the commands of God, the 613 mitzvot that are in the Torah, actually do speak to every aspect of your life. From the food you eat, to your sexuality, to your work, to your rest, to worship. 
The thing about God's word is it does have to do with every aspect of who you are. But the authority of them to replace the Holy Spirit working that out in your life is an illegitimate authority. If you were here last week, freedom, and I've talked about freedom, is is relieving yourself, escaping illegitimate authority over your life and submitting yourselves to legitimate, righteous authority. If you understand where these laws come from, you will also understand Jesus when he looks at him and he says, you Pharisees bind burdens heavy to carry on men. You, Jesus said, come unto me, you are burdened and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. The Pharisee says, if you think God's word is a burden, let me dogpile you with a bunch of extra stuff we made up. Do you see the dynamic? Jesus says, you bind on men burdens that are crazy heavy. Now let's wait in for a second. Some traditions, let's, say, let's talk about the word traditions, are helpful, right? Like we have, all of us have traditions, and they're not necessarily all sinful. The issue with them is their traditions were what they held on to. The word of God is what they left. Does that make sense? If there comes a time where there's a tradition that you have that comes in conflict with the word of God, which are you rejecting and which are you establishing? That's the problem. Because let me, let me give you an uh, um, illustration. At night, uh, me and my wife sleep in the same bed. I know that may be surprising. We do have five kids. You could have guessed. We also sleep on the same side of the bed every night. Anybody else? I want to see the hands of the psychopaths that just change every night, right? <laughs> like, like, which one of you guys are getting in, just rolling the dice? Say, you know, I just, I'm going to try the other side. It looks nice. I don't, who does that, right? You get, you're going to go in, and it makes it easy. You know what's your side, her side, and you go in. That is a tradition. Show me the Bible verse. Who pumps the gas in your family? Hey. Who mows the lawn? Who does the dishes the right way? Right? Toilet paper, does the, does, the, does the come over? Does it come under? Which way does the toilet paper go? Right? Let me ask you this. Who started the tradition that the front row is a deserted Baltic state, but Park Place is in the real Baptist are on the back? Brandon, do you know back there? I, I see you. Why did that become park place back there? Okay, so here's the deal too. In many ways, the scriptures are a big T tradition that have been passed down to us from our forefathers and foremothers in the faith. Amen? Which we will hold on to. Where you sit in this service every week, Amy, is a little T tradition. I've heard the sermons better from this side. Right? There are li- what time do we start? Ch- I'm, this is actually going to be helpful. What time do we start church? Ten. Ish. <clears throat> Stinking Coloradans. Ten. Okay. If there's no command in the scripture. That actually comes from, 
a history of agriculture in the United States of farming is why we start church generally at 10, 11 o'clock. Okay? But there, there's no re- most of us don't even know where that tradition came from. And so many traditions can exist like that, that they're there for so long that we think they're Bible, right? Cleanliness is next to godliness. Really? That's actually, Jesus has a problem with that. Um, like, there, okay, there's little t traditions that we have in our church. And, there's no, and you have them in your family. Let me say this. There is no verse on Christmas. I just lost some of you, okay? You're like, you don't know how many days till Christmas is, but I do. And if you talk about Christmas right now, we are going to a different church. <laughs> Listen, I'm, that's between you and the Holy Spirit, all right? There's no verse on I think Christmas is helpful. I think we should celebrate the birth of Jesus. Amen? I'm cool with it. I got no problem with you and your Christmas, all right? Simmer down. But there's no verse on that holiday. If somebody else does not want to celebrate Christmas, I understand that too. Matter of fact, Paul's going to write that one guy regards a day as holy and the other doesn't. And you guys should learn how to get along with each other. See, we have these, what I'm going to call little t traditions that we have to be willing to throw away if they come in conflict with the Word of God. Uh, Let me say it as clear as I can. Uh, Awana, house church, right? That awesome softball thing that we did about a month ago. Anybody remember that? There are things that are negotiable that we could change. Sunday school was invented, what was like 100 years ago, to help educate people that were coming into the church so that if they knew how to read, they had better employment opportunities. It was a way to educate a labor force and also teach God's word. Okay, but that's... How we express the ideas of Acts 2.42 of gathering together, studying the word, praying, and breaking bread. There's some, I'm going to get in trouble here. There's a little bit of flexibility there, amen? The principle and the truth that we got to do with the scripture saying, that we got a closed hand on that, but we got an open hand on, is Awana the best way to do that? We are, I'm looking at the elder, we are doing Awana in the fall. That's our plan. Okay, like... Please help serve. But the point should be here for us. Here's the thing. They are throwing away the word of God because they're holding on to their tradition. If these two things come in conflict with one another, what you hold on to and what you throw away says something. What you hold on to and what you throw away says something. What church... There's some things here that are optional, right? Do we have pews or do we have these chairs? I don't even know what you call these. Normal chairs. Optional versus obligatory. What are you obligated to do and what is optional? And you and I both have, have seen churches that have died on the hill of tradition. And somewhere, the zeal for the word of God gets lost. Because we just can't hold both in our heart like that. We have our own traditions here that should be helping us express the word of God. But if ever they become unhelpful, I want to say this as strong as I can. Let's throw them away. Amen? 
But let's die on the hill that we will never forsake the word of God. And the truth of scripture is a hill every single one of us has got to be willing to die on. Here's the thing. By adding to scripture, what you really end up doing is subtracting. By adding to scripture, it's always a net loss. Let me say it like this. Do you realize that the more rules and laws that we are making now, it used to be thou shalt not steal was enough, right? Thou shalt not steal. And that applied to intellectual property that in, in, um, had to do with physical property. That had a lot of range of meaning. And judges would say, okay, in this situation, even though the property is different or the circumstance is di- different, they are stealing. And that one law applied to a lot of things. As we begin to make millions on millions of laws and more rights and things, we are simultaneously taking away more and more freedom. In some ways, having more laws means we have less justice. This is kind of the flow of not only churches, but governments get in this. We just... we. We legalize ourselves to death. I've, said, I've, I've heard it said like this in, in the church, and you've got to take this. Tradition is the living faith of the dead. Tradition, in a good sense, in a positive sense. Like the tradition of scripture, the tradition of worship or prayer. There's a lot of things that we've been passed down that are big T tradition, not little t. There's the things we've got to hold on to. Good tradition is the living faith of those that are dead. Traditionalism and legalism is the dead faith of the living. Do you see that dynamic? Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Jesus does not give a rip that in keeping the word of God, he's coming in conflict with their tradition. Right? And listen, I'm a, I'm a son of the Reformation, right? I'm not a Roman Catholic. And one of the things that happened in the Reformation was the exact same thing that is happening here. They had, they had 1,400 years of councils and synods and catechisms. The Catholic catechism is on par with Scripture. You cannot be a true Catholic and not keep the Catholic catechism. They have their own midrash that they put up next to Scripture and say these things are together. We would say our constitution and bylaws, our elder board, my preaching are all under it. If my preaching does not explain the word of God, throw my preaching away. Do you hear me? They are putting it up here next to it. And they would look and say in history, so and so did this. And suddenly over time in the Catholic church, they, they elevated the teachings of man. On par with the teachings of scripture. The reformation was a reaction to and saying. No we're going back to sola scriptura. Scripture alone. And it was a reformation. Now I get you. If you've been here under my teaching for a minute. It's like yeah but Colby. You quote history all the time. Yes and amen. I find that scripture is a. I find that history. Let me say this the right way. I find that history is a great servant to scripture and a terrible master of it. Do you hear what I'm saying? 
In the moment where we say what's always been done is this way, and we begin to put that up next to or superior to Scripture, we have made this absolute same error. And sometimes, church, we've got to be honest. Sometimes tradition can go from serving a command of God, where it, tradition helps us serve a command of God, to making light of the word by sidestepping it or even nullifying it. Let's look at how Jesus dismantles this and then we'll be done. This is the last story and then I, I think Jesus is going to drive the nail home himself and I hope you can feel the brunt of this in that context. You leave the commandment of God and you hold to the tradition of men. Verse 8, verse 9, he said to them, you have a fine way. It's like you're creative, you're fancy, you're innovative when it comes to rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Oh, that we had a fine way of establishing fancy, innovative way of establishing the Word of God at expense to rejecting even our traditions. But invert that and you got something there. Verse 10, For Moses said, Honor your father and mother. That's the fifth commandment. And whoever reviles his father or mother must surely die. The death penalty, Exodus 20 and chapter 21. By the way, every one of us that has reviled our parents the wages of our sin is death. We believe that with all of our hearts. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him. He's forbidden to do anything for his father or mother. Thus you make void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. Jesus says, many such things you do. Here's the context. In Leviticus, there was this, um, in Leviticus 27, there was this thing in which people could take an object, say it was like your, your car, and you say, you know what, God has blessed me with this, and I feel like God's put it on my heart. I'm going to donate this car to the church to help the poor. So if there's a poor person who can't get to work, they can use this car. I've dedicated it to the Lord. So there was a prescription uh, in the Old Testament about how one would go about dedicating something to God. Maybe you made additional... Um, Food, like you made like 50 barrels extra of wheat, and you're going to dedicate that to the Lord. There's no direct commandment that says you have to. Just because you love God and you want to serve people, you're going to dedicate extra money or extra items or things to the church so that they could use it. What they did was they found that commandment in Leviticus about korban, about giving something to God, and they put it against okay, the commandment to honor thy father and mother. Which in the Old Testament had much more to do of just like speaking well of them in the marketplace. This, this had a whole concept of that when you were a kid, your parents changed your diaper. When they, your parents get old, you get to change their diapers. Nobody got that? Everybody, right? Okay. The visual is going to be striking. All right. How about this? I hope that some of you have had the conversation uh, and maybe even have a will that in the event that you die, who is going to raise your kids? Okay? Hope you've had that conversation. And, but I also hope that you've had the conversation with your kids in the event that you live, which one of them is going to be taking care of you? Right? I had five so that I hope one of them pans out. Okay? Some of you guys with one or two kids, y'all rolling the dice real, you better, I hope you did well. Okay? Because in this thing is as you get older, 
and you're less able to take care of yourself, your kids had a biblical responsibility to honor the role that you played in raising them by taking care of you in your old age. And what they would allow someone to do is to misuse this Leviticus command by saying, okay, the money that I would help my parents go into retirement or into a nursing home or into provision or to move into my house or to take care of their food. My parents have need, and the money that I would have to help them, sorry, parents, it's Corban. I've given it to God. The problem was the Pharisees made additional rules that didn't even make them give the money. They actually could keep it as investment capital, and they would give it at the end of their life. So the kid could be living in a seven-room mansion and the two parents living out on the street. And it's like, sorry, I would help you, but all the money, it's serving God, right? Here's, here's, a, here's a Wall Street word that we'll use to say what they're doing. It's called a loophole. It's a loophole. They feel like they've got a loophole which allows them to sidestep the thing God says, I want you to worship me by how you honor your parents later in life. You're misusing a text to sidestep that. Matter of fact, they've already done that in this chapter as well because the hand washing was never commanded on the the regular people. It was a commandment that was given to the priests. They took something that had, was applied to the priest and they misapplied it to the wrong people. They've now taken another text and they've misapplied it to another passage. They're not letting the Bible interpret the Bible. They're looking for ways to cheat. And they've invented all kinds of rules of man in order to nullify or make void the word of God. I'm sure nobody ever abuses scripture like that today, but just consider it. Jesus gives a case example in this Corban thing. He uses a lawyer's tactic to defeat lawyers. It's brilliant. Now I want to come into our sin and I want you to to understand that this is not about our enemies or people outside this room. This is about us. This is about us who loves the philosophies of men And we get our hearts that race after those instead of the word of God. James 2.10 says that whoever keeps the whole law but fails in just one point has become guilty of all of it. Matthew 5.17-20 says, Jesus here says, Do not think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Does that passage now make sense? Jesus says there's a singular precedent that is a good summary of what you do in many areas. Many of us search the scriptures looking for an excuse so that we don't have to do what God plainly calls us to do. 
We're hypocrites who want to appear on the outside like we're good people. But inwardly, we're not worshiping. We're not chasing after the heart of God to do the will of God. We take the commands of God as suggestions and the suggestions of man as commands. We do this, church, because we love darkness more than light. Matthew 24, 12 says that because of lawlessness, because we reject the way of God, the love of many will grow cold. When we say the word Pharisees, we often think of people who are not full of love. The, the reason why is because the way of God they keep outwardly in a way that's not even legitimate and their hearts are far from Him. So the, as they reject and they become lawless, the love of many, the scripture says, grow cold. Here's the thing about Jesus that I love. Jesus kept the law, the way, in order to manifest the love of God that we might be warmed by its light. That in all the ways that you've rejected God's command, He accepted the will of the Father and walked in it perfectly. You are either hot to the Word of God and cold towards the things of man, or you are cold to the things of God and warmed by the Word of man. You and I, my brothers and sisters, have sinned by adding and subtracting from the Word. And we've been tempted over and again to turn to the Word of man. You need only look at our politics and our media and the things that we sink our lives into besides the Word of God to prove that point. I love you enough. Repent. Repent. Let's bow and pray. I don't know what traditions and things are in your heart right now that are maybe more consuming. I don't know what words of men are more consuming of your affections than the Word of God. But maybe the Holy Spirit is coming right now and asking you to let go of something so that you can hold on to the Word. He's maybe coming to you and asking you to reject something so that he might establish more of his kingdom in your heart. If your love for man has grown cold, and you're still attending church, maybe today's word is for you. I don't know what kind of business you have with the Lord, but would you just take a few moments and just confess your sin to the Lord? Or you've been a Pharisee. Maybe let Jesus warm some things up. God forbid we keep running on and doing church with empty dead hearts. Family, he's in the resurrection business.
Dear Heavenly Father, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, would you loosen our grip on earth that we might fully claim heaven. God, would you teach us as the heavens are above the earth so are your ways higher than our ways. God, would you make us deaf to the ways and the words of man that we might have a fine-tuned ear to the word of God. God, would you forgive us where we bind extra-biblical burdens on people that have nothing to do with the way of Jesus? God, would you forgive us of our cold and empty worship? Fill us, O God, with your word that we might sing, we might praise, we might pray, we might evangelize, we might disciple, full of Jesus in life and truth. God, forgive us of our defilement, the inward kind that can look pretty on the outside but be dead men's bones on the inside. God, would you keep us from being church people that don't love Jesus? Father, will you forgive us of our pride? Lord, thank you so much for Jesus who kept the law on our behalf. Who cleared away all the muck and mire of traditions and rules that are not from you and gave us the one way. God, give us grace to walk in it. Pray it in Jesus' name. Everybody said, Amen.